Welcome back to the Far Out Wisdom Podcast. Today we have Melissa Meach. She's with us talking about the Khmer Empire and the recent history of Cambodia. We get into multiculturalism and inter- intersectionality. We get into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the politics of police in America, and so many other things. Boone and Melissa both have so much insight into uh, Cambodian history uh, as they're both from Cambodia. I was kind of sitting here like an idiot just trying to listen and pay attention the best I could. Um, And I learned a lot from this one. I really did. Um, It was great to have Melissa on and I really hope we can get her back soon. And as always, stay far out. everyone welcome back to the far out wisdom podcast we were having a little bit di- technical difficulties which is pretty common for podcasting i have my co-host jesse jesse hello how are you doing <laughs> i have been yelling at him this is why i chose jesse as a, a co-host because i wanted a relationship another one that i can yell at somebody else <laughs> She's she's been yelling at me for the last like two days. So, <laughs> and then we have our guests, which is both of our mutual friend, and she was supposed to come on a long time ago, and I haven't rescheduled her. Melissa, welcome to Fow. Thank you very very much, Melissa. Tell us a little bit so you can introduce yourself to the Fow universe, to our little planet, to our little friends, to our audience. Who are you? Um, my name is Melissa Meach. I am a Khmer American. I came here as a refugee in 1981. I actually have a whole bunch of multicultural degrees. I have an associate's in management for technical professionals with an emphasis of multiculturalism, multicultural management. I have a bachelor's in business administrations. And I have a master's in international development. So those are my fields of specialty. Let's see here. I, I'm not used to talking about myself, you guys. <laughs> way, so, way to make us look bad with all your education, Melissa. <laughs> Holy smokes. <laughs> so, so Melissa, uh, the, the inter- interesting thing about Melissa that she is Cambodian, just like me. And she, the reason why we invited onto her onto this podcast, not to only talk about multiculturalism, but we're, we're going to talk about also her family line with the, um, I think, is it the Freedom Fighters? It's, they, they're called the Freedom, so there was basically two sets of Freedom Fighters. There was the Freedom Fighters that occurred after the Khmer Rouge. Mm-hmm. When we talk about, when I talk about Freedom Fighters, I'm talking about Lenal's army. Right. 
And that's more in, in a lot of people, to my understanding, once you reached a certain age in Cambodia, right, you had to join the army right, w- when you were a male. So that's my understanding. My dad was a part of that army before the Khmeru took over. Right. Right. And so that's why we are, we I invited her onto the podcast the first time. So we, we will be talking about that as well. So Melissa does volunteer her time. What is the the project that you work on in that? I, I work at the, well, I volunteer for the Khmer Legacy Museum. Okay. And it's dedicated to empowering, empowering Khmer people. Remember how I told you my FOB starts coming out when I start using big words? <laughs> Do you see it now? <laughs> so when we, when we talk about FOB, guys, it's not a racist thing. This is what we say to each other. And, and Melissa makes fun of me all the time that my accent comes out. And it really does. My accent, I was born here, but my accent got thicker for some odd reason. So it makes podcasting really funny to other people when they're listening to me. But oh, it does, come out. <laughs> it does yeah. come out. It comes out and it, it's my unique uh, uniqueness of podcasting. So anyways, go ahead, Melissa, continue. So FOB stands for fresh off the boat. Right. It's something that just a term where when Khmer people, at least in my generation, when we talk about each other, it's a fun term that we use because our parents all have like hard, hard accents and they have traditions and cultures. And you're like, oh, my God, that's FOB. Like leaving um, using the dishwasher as a dish rack, but never (laughs) being allowed to use it. (laughs) That's what I do. That's FOB. So it just means fresh off the boat. It's just certain, it, it means basically it's certain, what's the word I'm looking for? Certain uh, things that we do within the Khmer culture that came over from Cambodia mm-hmm. and we implemented basically, my parents cook in the garage. Right. You know, does yours too? My, my, my parents cook outside, they barbecue outside and my family, they own a donut shop in Texas. Donut shop. Whoop, whoop. Wow, <laughs> that's you see the the Cambodians audience. If you guys don't know, we own donut shops. That's yep. what we're known for. And yep. so we we I believe that's in the East Coast. I, I don't remember where, but the biggest chain restaurant, uh, I think fried chicken, is owned by a Cambodian refugee. So I don't remember his name, but that's that's one of the things that we do. We run we run laundry mats. We run. Yep. <laughs> we do janitorial. We run donut shop, okay, yep. and then we 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 have little stores in and around Long Beach and stuff. And here in California, but where Melissa is from, you're from where again? Minnesota. Oh, Minnesota. So you see a lot of the Asian people. Where we, where did your family when they came to the United States of America? Where did they land it first? We ended up landing in Duluth. Basically, we were supposed to go to San Diego. That's where my uncle, my dad's cousin was going to sponsor us to go to San Diego. Right. But my dad wanted to get away after being involved in the Khmeru and everything. And and this is where my experience kind of kind of steps away from the traditional Khmer experience. My dad didn't want to be around any Khmer people. Right. So we ended up in uh, Duluth, Minnesota, which is far up north, cold as hell. But there was no Khmer people up there. So we were sponsored here by a church. My parents basically, and, and 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 this is the part that a lot of people don't understand about me and a lot of Khmer refugees. When we say we came here with nothing, mm-hmm. we literally came here with nothing but the clothes on our backs that were right. given us given to us 
by refugee camps that we had spent the last three, four years in. Mm-hmm. So I struggle. And the fact that so many Khmer people are so successful right now, mm-hmm. I struggle with the fact that when I hear people say, well, you can't lift yourself up by the bootstraps. Really? Because mm-hmm. I watched my parents do it. I watched my parents work factory line jobs, janitor jobs. You know what I mean? Right. I wa- they, ba- they came to America and didn't know barely any English. My mom didn't even go to school. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So wow. it's, it's it's amazing to me. My mom had no education whatsoever. And I remember growing up and being embarrassed. And I think about it right now and it almost put, brings me to tears. Mm-hmm. My mom would go, and I don't know if you ever, ever experienced this too, Boone. We would go to the grocery store and my parent, my mom didn't know how to write English. Mm-hmm. So back then it was, you, you had to sign checks, right? right? She didn't know how to sign a check. Right. So she would carry this piece of paper with her where my dad had written out all the numbers for her. Mm -hmm. And it would take her 15 minutes to sign a check. Mm -hmm. And people would sit there and give her dirty looks. And it was for me, you know, being six, seven, eight years old, it was embarrassing. Because I'm sitting here like all these people are looking at us. And I didn't understand at that point in time why she was doing that. So not only did my parents work all these jobs, right? They they taught themselves finance. They taught themselves credit. They taught themselves um, how to save money. Within, within, I think it was four or five years of them coming to America, they purchased their first car. Within uh, like six or seven years of them coming to America, they purchased their first home. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea, and, and my parents... And I, I sit there and listen to people. Well, you can't afford to live on ten dollars an hour. My mm-hmm. parents were making five dollars an hour, mm-hmm. but what they also didn't do was after a hard day of work, they didn't go to the bar and have a drink. Right. You know what I mean? They they saved. They bought what we needed and they saved. I was dressed in Kmart clothes. It was embarrassing. Mm-hmm. You know, but they knew this is what's important and this is what isn't. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know if you had the same experience. So w- with me, I was the same thing where we, we couldn't even afford to have our hair did. So mm-hmm. we had, I had that bowl cut hair, you know, I still do. <laughs> okay. Melissa's <laughs> laughing because you know what I'm talking about. I have the same hairdo, the same bangs, same long hair since I was, I probably was born with it. I don't know. But that's pretty much I was the same thing. I was raised with on welfare. I grew up in the ghetto. But I grew up around Cambodian people, though. So I saw the gangs. I saw we have a gang called like the Tiny Rascal Gangs. And then we had the ABCs, the Asian Boys. And then we had like all the Mexican gangs that we grew grew up with. So our experience are similar. The Cambodians had nothing. We Our country was practically destroyed by the civil war let alone pol pot did a genocide okay and it, it took a lot of lives including probably melissa's family did you lose a lot of family in during the rouge yeah i did yep so the rouge you know they took my my grandfather they took my my great grandmother they took my great aunt they took everything from my family and the thing is is that 
my dad was a radical communist, and this is why I talk about a lot in my podcast. And I encourage you guys, if you guys are listening to this, who are left wing, that you guys can be just as radical and just as dangerous and disgusting as right wing militias. And so we're going to be talking about that too as well. So when my parents came, we landed in Georgia. And so I was born in Georgia. I was born on the kitchen floor. I guess that's where I belong. Oh, wow. <laughs> so wow. my mom, my mom was in labor and she was like, I'm not going to, I'm going to have this baby in this house right now. And so that's what happened. And then they decided to move to California. We came here, we landed here in 89 in Fresno where I'm at still. And so my parents didn't have nothing. They didn't really understand English. They didn't, they didn't even know how to write or read. They only had like, kindergarten education in Cambodia and that's pretty much it because I don't know if you guys know this but me and Melissa's family came from the same village okay the same the same wow. area yeah the same, the same province area. yeah the same province same thing as Pol Pot so it was it, it, that's the interesting part about this whole thing and and the thing is is that a lot of a Cambod a lot of Cambodians and Melissa's probably only, the only one that I came across so far that's is speaking about what we see today in American politics so. so I've got some questions for you, Melissa, and this is coming from a place of, of ignorance about where you guys came from, but can you define what the Khmer and the Khmer Ru are, or at least tell me what they what, what that means to you? The Khmer Ru are basically a group of radicals. They are literally anti-fascist. So what you see with Antifa today is a good representation of what the Khmer Ru is. So the Khmer Ru was ran... Here, here's so I, I got. I guess I got to kind of give you a history to get a basic understanding of what the Khmer Rouge is. Bobot was an upper middle class child. His family were was a merchant family. They they owned a whole bunch of farmland. They were considered what Americans would consider upper class. What is it called in um, Marxism? The I can't pronounce the word. The bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie. Bourgeoisie. Yep. Right. I, I know the word. I just could not pronounce it. I still can't pronounce it. Her right fob now. is coming out. <laughs> yes. So basically, they had enough money to send him to all these different types of schools, right? His, I, I think it's his sister ended up becoming one of Sayano, uh, King Sayano's concubines. Right. Which... In my opinion, and I can't prove this, this gave him basically a scholarship to go study in France. Right. Right. So when he studied in France, he ran, he came across Karl Marx. Right. And there was a group of, because at the time it was, I think it was, he went to France in the 1940s, I think, if I, am I correct on that? I don't uh, know the exact date of when he went to France. Back then, it, communism was big in France, right? Right, um, right. It was the yeah. French that educate him and his, I, they called him comrades. the Gang of Four. Yeah, right. his comrades. So when we talk about Pol Pot's comrades, we're talking about Kian Simpan, Dun Chia, uh, Ling Seri, and their wives. Right. Okay, that went to their Saban yep. in France. Yep. So what they saw, and, and, and this is very important too, because the history of the Khmer people, we come from... Have JD, have you ever heard of the Khmer Empire? No, no, this is okay. this is all new stuff to me. So the Khmer Empire basically was one of the biggest empires in historical history. It it is same thing as Rome was to Europe, 
the Khmer Empire was to Asia. We expanded throughout most of Southeast Asia. Humongous kingdom. We were technologically advanced. We had agriculture that they still can't explain today, right? We had canals, connecting things, irrigation systems, plants, everything. The Khmer culture was rich, right? And this this culture expanded Mm -hmm. for millenniums. We were a humongous part of the Silk Roads. We were a trading post in the Silk Roads. We were known for rice. We were known for, I think, silk. We were known for a lot of different things, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Over time, this empire, which was ran by a king, and there was multiple kings there, over time, the, the borders began shrinking because of um, conflicts all over between the Cham and a whole bunch of other different tribes, right? right. So. In the early, in the late, I don't want to say early, I think it's the late 1800s, when China became known as the Pearl of Asia, the French were looking for something along the same lines. Right. Um, And because Cambodia was at war with Vietnam, who was closing, and so Cambodia was at war with the Thai and the Vietnam. Right. And the Vietnamese. So the borders began began closing in. So what the king did at the time was he went to the French and he said, can you protect us? And the French said, yes, we will protect you, but you have to give control of your country to us. Right. So we did an agreement and Cambodia was officially colonialized by Mm -hmm. the French. Right. Right. So that's why the French has such a big, and that's important because that gives you a basic understanding of why the French had such a big influence over Cambodia. Right. And to, sorry to interrupt you for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you guys want to know what she's talking about. It's called the French Protectorate of Cambodia. I yep. think I pronounced that correctly. So yep. that's when I, the king, King Norton, requested the establishment of the French to protect over his country from Thailand and stuff because they were going on pretty much a war between our neighbors that mm-hmm. made him ask for help. Go ahead. Yep. So the Khmer people have always seen, because of the history, our history, the Khmer people has always seen our king as gods. Okay, they're not just kings. We see them as gods, our protectors. Okay, in 1940, and I I suck at dates, you guys, I'm sorry, I'm just not a very detailed person. (laughs) Sometime in 1940 or late 30s or early 40s, King Sayanut, Sadat Sayanut had convinced the French to free us from colonialism, and they agreed. So we were a fairly new nation when Pol Pot had had taken power. And what he saw, and 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 this is why I really want to have a discussion with so Paul, is because I'm trying to get a basic understanding of what the economy was like in Cambodia right. under Sayanu. Mm-hmm. So what Pol Pot saw, and it's true. Um, Popot saw a whole bunch of because we're we're a, a nation of farmers. That's right. that's our basic that's our basic export. So what Popot saw was the king taking advantage of all these farmers, right? Mm-hmm. And these farmers were struggling to survive. So he wasn't wrong in that aspect. Just like I'm not saying Antifa is wrong in how they're viewing. There are oppressed people in America, right? Mm-hmm. So he wasn't, there's a lot of aspects and a lot of people talk all these things about, because Popot was a bad guy, mm-hmm. but understanding why he did it, I understand his methods of getting to where we need to go is what's dangerous. 
Right. So what when he went to when he went to France, his comrade Sampan wrote up a, a thesis called the Underdevelopment of Cambodia, that acted as the framework for implementing Marxism into Cambodia. So these guys were the ones fighting oppression. That's who the Khmeru were. The Khmeru were a whole bunch of poor farmers that right. felt oppressed. Right. Wow. So do, doesn't that remind you now of Antifa? Yeah, that's 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 interesting. I, I, I knew there was a lot of history to it, but you, you really went back with that one. That's That's very interesting. I've never thought about it from this perspective before. So let me ask you this. Do you think that the time frame, which I think you mentioned was the 40s or or it looks like the dissolution of the protectorate that, that Boone mentioned was in 1953 and then uh, Pol Pot took, took power. Do you think that that specific time frame in the history of the world had anything to do with the, the ability to create a system like that? Pol Pot actually took power um, in 1975. Okay. Um, and this is what me and Boone were talking about uh, earlier. So what originally happened was, and I, I want to, it's funny to me because the similarities we're seeing right now between the, the, how the Khmeru took power and what's going on in America right now is one of the reasons why I'm so adamant in fighting this whole thing. Right. So sure. When, when Bolt and his comrades came back to Cambodia, they actually tried to implement Marxism. They tried to work with the the king at the time to implement Marxism. Nobody actually took them seriously. They were in the background. And then I, it was the elections of 1960. I'm sorry here. Let me take a look here. The elections of 1962. That's it. The elections of 1962 actually put a lot of them in office. In the same manner that the elections in 2018 put people like AOC in office, right? right? Mm-hmm. So when when Sampan actually was elected to the National Assembly, the right wing, which is Lenol and his army, got the majority in the same way that in 2018, the Republicans took the House, or not the House, I'm sorry, the Senate, right? Yep. So they 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 got the power, and what they did was, according to some pawn, they went through and they tried to. And I I don't know I haven't researched enough to know if this is true or not. Okay, I'm I'm looking into this research right now. According to some pawn, Lenol and his government forced the Khmer farmers to sell rice, basically lower than cost. So the government could get rich, right? Interesting. So that led to a revolution. It led not a revolution, it led to a riot in specifically in Matambang. There was a riot in Matambang in nineteen sixty seven. It was a rebellion against the right wing government. Sampan and Popot and the Khmeru at the time again super small. It was basically only a few people. Right. They took advantage of this rebellion, right? Mm-hmm. And they started planning a whole bunch of protests. Stak Sayanuk said they are the ones that did it. He pointed directly to Popot and Sampan, which 
led them into hiding and they went to hide in the jungle. Right. While they were hiding in the jungle, you have to understand too, we were we had the Vietnam War going all around us. Right. Mm-hmm. So we had the bombings, right? A lot of people say the bombings happened under Nixon. Bombings didn't start under Nixon. Right. The bombing started under Lyndon B. Johnson. Right. So our 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 farms, our farmland were bombed since the 1960s. Right. So you had a whole bunch of people and you should see these photos. It was villages completely destroyed, right? Right. And so now you you've got full boat pushed into the jungle with all these farmers saying, we'll protect you from the Americans. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're like, we'll protect you from the Americans. So they're building up their army in the jungle and they're sitting there while they're building up their army. They're indoctrinating these people with these Marxist ideals. Look at what the King's doing. Look at what Lenol's doing. He's trying to take everything away from you. He doesn't care about you. Right. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, once that occurred, they started building, building, building. They were able to then do these rebellion fights. So you've had you had Linnell's army fighting two fronts. You had him fighting for fighting the borders. Plus, you had the civil war going on between the Khmeru and the Linnell army. Right. So everything came to a head in 19, when Popot took power, they had grew into this massive army of poor, and I, I keep repeating this because this is an important aspect of it. They had grew into a massive army of poor farmers, poor, uneducated farmers that he said, once I get power, you're going to see a Cambodia like the Khmer Kingdom you once knew. It was called Angkor. Right. Okay. And that, and so in 1975, what ended up, ha- so before I get to 1975, we have Lenal's coup. And, and this is how, this is a big reason why the, the Khmeru were able to gain the following they gained. Coup. So you had, that's Sayanut basically telling America, America wanted to get into Cambodia really bad. Cambodia was considered the gateway of communism. It was Cambodian Laos that was considered the gateway of communism. Right. They felt that once they passed, if communism was able to get past Cambodian Laos, they had lost the war against communism. Right. Okay. So it was, it was an important front and they wanted the military structure there. Sayanuk, who had a relationship with China himself, didn't want to get involved. And I, I'm sure he's a bi- there was a bias there. Sayanut was far from perfect. Right. Okay. So what, what America did was they said, cool, if you don't let us in, we're going to take away all your military aid. Mind you, we're 20 years into being an independent nation. We have no economy yet. We absolutely needed the Americans' help, the French's help, everybody's help, because we're a brand new nation. Right. So Linnell planned, and, and this is my conspiracy theorist side, I do think America did help Linnell plan that coup. Right. So the coup happened, right? And they pushed uh, Sayanot out, the king out. And remember how I told you before, the Khmer people see the king as a god. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So what the Khmer did was they said, hey, king, come over to our side. 
And so now the Khmeru had the king promoting the, the I mean the Khmeru and the king were both using each other. But since they got the king to their side, now you had Khmer people saying, "Wait. The Khmeru are the good side. They mm-hmm. have the king on their side." So that's how they built up the army, an army big enough to defeat not only Lenol's army who I I pulled up official docs and even the Americans in the official docs, and I'm trying to start a library right now of what happened. They sp- they literally said Lenol is a weak leader. And they helped put him in power. Right. So what ended up happening was Lenol took power. All these people sided with the Khmeru. And then in 1975, it all came to a headway when they produced that bubble around Phnom Penh and took it over and the Americans left. Right. And that right. was the big, that was the catalyst. So the Khmerus, and don't get me wrong, I don't blame anything on America. The Khmerus used the Americans, though, as a catalyst to implement their policies in the same manner that Black Lives Matter and Antifa are using the shooting, the shootings of Black men mm-hmm. as a catalyst to implement socialism. Right. Does that make sense? So before anybody starts accusing Melissa of being like a racist, your husband is what? Black. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so well, I just want to say too, with, with with all the context you gave, I I think it it brings all the opinions that that I've heard you express before. It it, it makes them make a hell of a lot more more sense. But I guess the the question that I have for you then is. It's it's it sounds like there was a lot of background in Cambodia. It sounds like there was a lot of uh, a lot of things that were happening there that 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 made something like the coup and the fears in between before Pol Pot uh, reign. That I, I I would have to look at it more in order to to decide whether whether or not I would have been okay with that situation. You know, mm-hmm. obviously prior to 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 all the terrible things that he did during his reign. Mm-hmm. However. What, in addition to just the catalysts that are happening in the United States, do you think is feeding into this thing, right? Because it can't just be a few bad shootings, and we can get into into whether or not the, they were bad shootings or not. That's not the point. But what what else is it? How how is our our the the, the nature of our of our social state so bad right now? that thousands of people can 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 go out and loot and riot and 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 protest and do all of this stuff in the streets and literally support communist and marxist ideals. I really don't understand. And this is where in in my personal opinion this is where we get into Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm-hmm. Did you guys uh, get a chance to take a look at that stuff at all? I did. Oh yeah. I added yeah, Wi-Fi and battery to mine. <laughs> <laughs> so So the basic premise of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I think this is Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a motivational therapy theory. This is something I learned in my business program, right? Businesses have locked down this theory, like no tomorrow in order to get people to produce more. Okay. So you, you, have you ever been to a meeting? You guys, you guys get rewards and stuff at your place of employment. Yeah, I think yesterday yeah. JD had a meeting and he had free beer and pizza. 
rewards, <laughs> rewards, rewards and recognition, right? So, rewards yeah. and recognition. So before, rewards uh, and recognition. before we let uh, Melissa continue. So what she's talking about is the Maslow hierarchy, uh, hierarchical needs to self-actualization. So pretty much I want you guys to, I'm talking to the audience. I want you guys to picture a triangle. And then at the bottom, it has the physiological need, the safety need, loving belonging, esteem, self-actualization, and self-transcendence. So that's where Melissa's going to break that down for you. And I'm going to link that down below as well. So go for it. Yep. So basically, the business world figured out that if they can get you beyond a certain level, you will produce more. The public sector has also the public sector has kind of manipulated this. So I'm going to give you a, a really more detailed breakdown of the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So basically Maslow believed that there were five, actually he believed there were six. The six was never really published, right? He believed there were six levels in order to get, in order to motivate a person. So if you have multiple choices, what's going to motivate you for one choice over another, right? The first two levels are basic needs. They're external needs. The first one is your basic needs like breathing, eating, shelter. The second level is safety needs. Do I have enough money to pay the bills? Do I feel protected? The next level is going to be your psychological or your internal needs. Level three is love and belonging. Like, do I feel like my family cares about me? Do I feel included in groups? Right. Fourth step mm -hmm. is esteem. That's self-esteem. How do I look at myself? Do I have self-respect for myself? And then you get to the last five levels, which is kind of beyond self now. And you get into the self-actualization phase, which is level five. And that's about self-reflection. That's about understanding who you are. Right understanding what you're good at right. and then you get to level six which, which is transcendence because once you understand what you're good at you can start helping other people right and that's always the goal is to get to level six mm -hmm. right that motivates that's what makes society better is once you get to level six unfortunately in america we're stuck at level three and i think our government pushes as getting stuck at level three and level four. Level three, and I, I kind of take a look at who's actually protesting. Right. Right. It's not about the cause, it's about feeling like you're a part of something greater. Right. Listen to the way they speak. It's about belonging. I want to belong. I want to feel like I belong to something greater than me so let me let me let me bring this up for a minute okay so so what is what's being said in the media what's being said on social media what what seems to be the main focus of the conversation doesn't appear to be very clear on the surface level right like it it seems like like people are genuinely out there protesting um the safety of uh, of certain individuals and on the surface, it looks like it's it looks like they're doing it for for a really good reason, it, it, you know, all, all of this stuff. And I'm I'm trying to avoid certain words like like virtue signaling, but but it seems like some people are using their need for for the level four their self esteem needs 
And in order in order to to achieve that, they're they're taking advantage of of other people's needs for security and safety. Does that are you on board with that? Does that make sense? Do you agree? I 100 percent agree with you. That's exactly where I was going at with it. You said it a lot better than I did. So so my question, would it be worth it? to try to point that out to people on a mass level because I can bring up something like like uh, like virtue signaling and really if I say that to a person it, it it comes across as an attack if I say stop virtue signaling do you think the person I'm I'm talking to is is going to stop virtue signaling you know uh, I I would say it would make them dig their their heels in even more so how do we get people to 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 realize and internalize the the things that you're talking about here you don't and I hate to say that, but they need to come to these realizations themselves. So what you what you do is you try to empower people, so they come to these realizations yourself, themselves. A true leader, and this is a, a big thing to me, a true leader doesn't lead; they serve. Yeah. Right. So as a leader, as somebody who's trying to change people's mind, it's not a matter of trying to get them to understand something. It's trying to lead them or trying to empower them enough so they can understand it themselves. People will come to these realizations on their own, but you need to empower them enough so they do. This is why, and I'm a big troll. I don't take too much on the internet seriously. I honestly don't. <laughs> yeah, I've I don't noticed. Believe, I don't believe half the crap I see on the internet, right? Yeah. But the goal for me is to make people see how stupid their ideas is. Because so, until I show people how stupid their ideas are, we can't have a real conversation. Sure, sure. So so there, there's a lot of terms, and I've brought this up a couple of times. The last podcast that Boone and I did, I, I brought up the same thing. I try to avoid using typical terms as often as they can just because they're so loaded with, with, with so much else. But another one you used, I, I agree with in principle, you said, you know, the idea of pulling yourself by up by the bootstraps toward the beginning of this conversation. Mm -hmm. So so how do we how do we get people to to realize their their I, help me out here? I don't, I'm not sure how to how yeah, to potential. ask this question. Yeah. How do we get people to realize their potential and and make it so people don't think that they are the victims when they're really not? How do we how do we get other people to stop treating certain people like they're victims? You know, because um, if, if I were in if I were in somebody's shoes or if I if I were in, in certain people's shoes and somebody looks at me and they say, OK, you're a victim. There's nothing you can do. You you have to 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 live a life where, where you're going to be oppressed and this is impossible to get away from. There's nothing you can do about it. You're fucked. Sorry. I would look at them and, and the first thing that would cross my mind is, well, no, fuck you. I'm not going to let somebody else control, you know, how, how, how my life goes down and whether or not I'm, I'm actually being oppressed or not, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can. But it seems like, like all, all, all of this, this victimization lately stems from exactly what you're talking about with, uh, with Maslow's hierarchy. So I'm going off on a monologue. I, I don't even know where my question was anymore, but <laughs> But yeah, I guess I guess I'm 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 with you and I'm sick of it and and I see it all the time, you know. But at the same time, people who are who are super, you know, on on the right wing side of things, I don't I don't think that they have very much compassion. It's 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 more about going on the attack 
rather than actually trying to get people to to reach that level of self-actualization or at least self-esteem, you know. Right. Well, I'm going to add a little bit to it. So what what they're, they're they're trying to say is that the so Melissa said that like I said if you guys have a chance, I'm going to like I said, I'm going to link this down below so you know where she's talking about where we're stuck on level 3. So she's talking about friends, family and sexual intimacy. So we are living in a generation where we're having a lot of trust issues that I see in, in our today's society. We don't trust each other. So going back to Melissa telling the story about the Khmer Rouge and stuff in Cambodian society today, today they don't trust each other. So a lot of the Maslow hierarchical needs is is pretty much suffering so when people go out and join the proud boys when people join antifa or black lives matter or something like, like that it's a sense of community that i think this is going back to Fred nietzsche when he talks about god is dead and when nietzsche's what, what nietzsche means means by that is that the sense of community during that period of time we had a lot of religious institutions and stuff like that that provide that community that sense of community nowadays with you know the beginning of liberalism and stuff like that focusing on the individual now the the part of sense of belonging is missing that in, in what i see i'm not telling you guys to join any religious institution or anything like that or go to church but that's where um you start to see a lot of critical race theory and itself it's like religion in itself if you know that makes sense it almost sounds like you're saying that that people are reaching out and joining these groups and finding somewhat like-minded be, uh, people right. um at the expense of of other groups Right. And so that's why you, so, you see a lot of this destruction that's going on. And our politics nowadays, I don't even remember this much now. You know, it's like, you know, all of us, both of us, all three of us actually grew up in the 90s. And the 90s was focused a lot on family. Now, you don't see that a lot anymore. You see a lot of people get ghosted in relationship, they, that friendship. They, they don't really. I, I honestly believe one of the main reasons that's in the destruction of the human connection is social media. That's what I think that yeah. adds to it. I mean, it's yeah. like really uh, for the likes. This is why you see a lot of TikToks, people doing Black Lives Matter and throwing a fist up and don't even know what the fuck they're doing. I don't even think they know what it means. <laughs> To be honest with you. And I know if you are a young e-girl listening to this, you're fucking stupid. Don't pretty much just <laughs> listen to what you're standing for. This is what I'm talking about. People are, they're, they're just like Melissa said, they're so focused on a sense of belonging. They would do anything and everything to belong. Even, that, exactly even, if, yeah, even if that means destroying businesses, even if that means shooting and executing somebody in Portland, even if it means going to an ICE detention center just to save, you know, people in the ICE detention center, the, the, the children in cages. And if that means taking out people in the process of being a fucking hero, that's what they're going to do. And I think people think they're so special. And I there's. And I'm just going to say it straight out. I'm not being a dick or anything. Like, we're not special. Okay. It was just like everybody else. Okay. My podcast, I started a podcast and like I started a podcast and pretty much we're having this conversation discussion, but my ideas are just my ideas. And then it just, I'm using that freedom of speech that's given to me to my constitutional rights. And that's pretty much it. But do I think I'm special? Nah. You know what I mean? And I think that's where um, the problem that I see the roots, I'm not saying that's the the target, but I think that's one of the many um, reasons for our self-destruction culture that you see today. 
Okay, so I I want to I want to go back to 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 some of your background, Melissa. So l- let me ask the question like this: When you studied multiculturalism, beginning with your associate's degree, what was multiculturalism at that point, and and uh, and when was it? Multiculturalism. This was I, I had I got my associates about ten years ago. She's like, that was a long time okay. ago, man. That was a decade ago. I don't remember shit. I, I, w- I was a late bloomer. Actually, when I first graduated, I graduated high school in 1996 and I went to college. I actually majored in um, political science and minored in philosophy. Nice. I actually wanted to be a Supreme Court judge. Nice. Um, wow. I was, yeah, I wanted to be, I, I since I was young, I liked arguing with people and debating with people. <laughs> Since I was young, I, I, I seriously wanted to be a lawyer since I was like probably 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to be like the first Cambodian Supreme Court judge. Right. But- I'll vote for you because that's uh, <laughs> how Supreme Court justices work now. Yes. We have to vote. <laughs> yes. No, but I, I went to, I ended up going to a small little, very, very racist town. Wasn't a big fan of it and ended up dropping out of college. My first time going through. So then I ended up in 1999, I ended up having my first daughter and I never really thought about going back to school until I've got like, I had between 1999 and when I started college, I had years of experience in my job and I went to interview at this company and they said, yeah, you have everything we need, but we can't hire you because you don't have a degree. Right. I, so, I definitely have an opinion on that, but yeah. go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I do too. So that's why I ended up going back to school and I ended up with a really good teacher. And I think I mentioned this before. He used to tell us that America, I, he hated the term melting pot, right? right? He liked the term stew. America is a pot of stew because everybody still keeps their identity, but all the flavors meld together. That's beautiful. So you, you have... You have a potato and you have some meat over right. there, but it's not, <laughs> said, it's, potato. it's not it's a potato, potato. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's not, it's not a completely homogenous right. thing. It's, right. it's still got all these separate characteristics. I love yep. that. That's, that's yep. a really good one. And so he was an awesome, I actually had two professors. I had one rather liberal professor, but I mean, typical Kennedy liberal. And then I had a very conservative professor and he was like gun rights. Those were the two professors I had throughout my associates program. And they worked very well together. Right. Right. So what they used to. So we were learning master's level crap when we were doing our associates program. We were talking about multiculturalism. Multiculturalism to us was about the diversity of thought, cognitive diversity. Really? It wasn't actually about skin color. It wasn't about. So basically the danger is when you talk about diversity, do you center it around race or do you center it around thought? There's a big difference. Going right back to to what you and I talked about last time, Boone. Right. Mm -hmm. And, And yeah, I think that that is the question to ask. Absolutely. And that's the big thing, because when you wrap it around race, it becomes dangerous because then what you end up doing is you end up creating these separate groups. Right. But when you wrap it around thought and when you wrap it around collaboration, you end up finding solutions you never thought of before. So maybe maybe one of the difficult parts here is is immutable characteristics are very easy to define. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, so I can I can look at you and look at me and put us into a couple of easy categories. You're female. I'm a male. You know, you you are Cambodian. I'm well. You're American, but you're you're Asian. I'm white. You know, those are those are easy ways to put keep people into categories. But if you talk about characteristics that are not immutable, like like how you think about certain things, like whether or not you are uh, spiritual, like what that means to you, you know, there's 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 a bunch of them. How do you actually define that? Is it important to 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 make a quota even in those situations? And 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 I guess why does it matter more than more than separations based on on immu- immutable characteristics? Yeah, race. Yep. So it's all it all breaks down to experience. Your experiences help you bring stuff to the table that would not otherwise be brought to the table. And I think I shared this story before. Have you ever read? And I'm blanking out on the author of the book. It's called The World Is Flat. Have you ever read the book? Is that where that came from the other day? <laughs> no, I have not. The world is flat. Yeah. The world is flat is a, a book about how the internet changed the world. It changed the way we we communicated with each other. It changed the way we um, interacted with each other. It helped people understand. It helped us become more multicultural, and it helped us collaborate to find better solutions. The person who created, I think his name is Sir something or another. I'm blinking. I suck at details, you guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) No worries. So the guy who created the internet said that if I knew the internet was going to be created in this way, I would have never created it. The internet as we know it, the World Wide Web. Sure. He said I would have never created it because what he wanted to do was a person from China experiences life a lot differently than a person from America. And I'm going to give you a prime example. There was a some community college was trying to create a more energy efficient car and they couldn't figure it out. So they had put their problem online on a platform mm-hmm. and somebody from China helped them figure out the solutions because they saw it differently than the person from America did. And yep. we see this over and over and over again, right? My experience as a person, my life experience, and that experience comes from my my nationality it comes from me being a woman because when people think of multiculturalism right they think of ethnicity they think of skin color Mm -hmm. that's not what multiculturalism is there's subgroups within groups there's a if if you're sitting in a wheelchair people who sit in a wheelchair have a different culture than people who are standing up they experience life differently it's a subculture within America. So your your idea of I guess I would say positive multiculturalism or, or multiculturalism that could be used in a good way is sometimes immutable. Sometimes it, it has to do with with things that are, are very visible and clear to the eye and sometimes it doesn't. So so like for example, there's a huge difference between, you know, a, a black person who who grew up in in uh, Chicago and a black person who grew up in East Africa. There's you know that just because they 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 look a similar way doesn't mean they have even remotely similar uh, worldviews. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. During my during my associates program, we had a very and this is what I really loved about it because we had a very diverse group of people. I was dealing with people from Nigeria. I was dealing with people from Brazil. You know what I mean? I was. Yep. My the the lady I spoke with that was from Liberia was closer in culture was closer to me 
than they were to black Americans. Okay. Okay. So, and that's, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. Like you, you try to group all these people when there's not a lot of similarities there. That's not what multiculturalism is. But when we center multiculturalism around race, that's what it becomes and becomes dangerous because you end up grouping people that shouldn't be grouped together. I am closer to a person from Liberia, as far as my cultural experience goes, Mm -hmm. than I am to a person from China. Right. Does that make sense? But I'm considered Asian. Mm -hmm. And people look at me and they think China. (laughs) No, I sat down... We're honorary Asians now. <laughs> I sat down and I had a con. We we used to get and and back to what you were saying before, as far as how do we get people beyond it? You can't get people beyond it online. Just like Boone said, you can't do it on social. You have to have real conversations, right? You right. have to sit yeah, down with the person. There's a in huge real difference. Life. Yep, you have to sit down with the person in real life. I had some of the most meaningful conversations with these people. We sat there and we talked about what life was like. Right. The person from Liberia, I used to sit down and the way we raise our kids are the same. I was like, wow, you do that, too. And she's like, yeah, that's completely cultural. And and I forgot which country another lady I spoke with. She's like she had went to church one day. And this is a funny story. She had went to church one day and she went to this lady and she goes, wow, you're so fat. And the lady got offended. Wow. The lady got absolutely offended. Guess what? In her culture. I'm guessing that. (laughs) I think in our culture too, in the Capone culture, if the more fat you are, the more wealthy wealthy you are. are. Fat means wealthy. That was a compliment. Mm -hmm. In her eyes, that was a compliment. But to an American, what you just called me fat. You do in her country, right? (laughs) In her country, if you were fat, that meant you had enough to eat. Right. Your safety needs were met. Right. Your 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 physio f- I can't pronounce that word for crap. I'm sorry. Physiological. <laughs> yeah, physiological. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Needs were met. You know what I mean? You could focus on other things. So to her, like to be able to eat, that was a big right. deal. Right. And seeing and in, in listening to you guys' last podcast. I'm sorry, I'm going on a rant now. I'm sorry about no, that. No, it's fine. That's Keep the going. purpose of podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> listening to you guys' last podcast and in this idea of unleashing potential that's how i live my life right my goal is to unleash potential i i'd rather focus all of my resources on somebody that i think can make a difference in this world than focus my resources on somebody that's just like eh, i don't care right i agree so i'm gonna i'm gonna try to break down multiculturalism just a little bit more into like subcategories so multiculturalism is pretty much the coexistence of different cultures okay and then multiculturalism is like the a lot of it, it talks about the policy to keep things culturally diverse there are there's a lot of it of, of different conception but the the top three that i'm going to be talking about right now is the semiotic conception the normative conception and the societal conception so <clears throat> it, it, it gets really complicated and it breaks down just like melissa said it's it's subcultures basically we are so, so melissa and i we have the same thing we understand each other but that's because the fact that we're both cambodian we pretty much understand each other and and our language and stuff like that because we we didn't necessarily grew the same but at the same time i'm pretty sure we were punished the same 
Okay, because we were punished very aggressive in comparison to probably what JD. JD, I don't know, JD, if you ever got an ass whooping by your parents. Uh, Let let me just put it like (laughs) this. I got got a few spankings and that's about it. No, me and Melissa. You're a lucky guy. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, we got our ass beat. Okay, I'm not talking about like spanking this is just this is serious shit that we got it's i'm talking about welts yeah (laughs) all right i'm talking about like scratches (laughs) we shouldn't be laughing laughing, but that's that's what minimalist that's the connection that we have with each other so the semiotic conception i guess is this is this philosophers i mean like like psychologists where uh they they define it as like a set of like social systems and like symbols like representations and practices that are significant in their lives held by certain groups, just like the Cambodians. We, when we're bad, you get your ass beat by your parents, right? We're not spoiled by the rod. And it's like a system of ideals that are structured to fit a symbolic meaning. So in our culture, we respect our parents, right? So our parents are our head. So we are taught, I'm taught to respect Melissa because she's older than me. And so with her, in turn, she respects her parents, her mom, and then her dad, and then Buddha, right? That's there now, right? Yep. And so the normative conception, this is another one. It's basically, it's adopted by the communitarians. So the communitarians, they pretty much believe the importance of the family unit. The culture is very important because it is what provides to them their beliefs, their norms, and their moral reasons that influence, some would say, control to act among their family, friend, as a society as a whole. So pretty much like moral commitments. So what you learn, like, for example, JD talked about raising, growing up Christian, that's his moral foundation that he brought over to his life and me and Melissa, we grew up, did you grow up Buddhist like me? No, I grew up Christian. Christian. So, so you and JD probably have a understanding with each other Whereas I, I was raised Buddhist. See, so then me and Melissa don't have that connection anymore. She has a connection with JD. Okay. And then let me see. I did my research, so fam. Are we talking about, uh, are we talking about a new version of, of what do they call it now? Um, intersectionality intersectionality yeah is this is this like is this like the 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 far out wisdom version of intersectionality (laughs) well you know what's funny and and i always tell this to people you know what's funny is that i believe a lot of the things progressives believe they just perverted the ideas (laughs) and that's what pisses me off multiculturalism turned into intersectionality because it became race-based it was right. never right. supposed to be about race. So you're you're, right? you're basically talking like so pretty much like the, the the last one, the societal conception. That's by the Canadian philosopher Kim Lika. So he pretty much talks about the dual dual topology. So he talks about like like a the Pollock ethnic minorities and the national minorities. So he's basically talking about how me and Melissa we came to this country. We have our sets and beliefs within a national minority. Pretty much the culture of the national like the country, the United States of America, to the Cambodians, what we learn. So we're like the the polyethnic minority, basically. That's pretty much what it is right there. Mm-hmm. And the intersectionalists, what they did was they they poison it and they made it toxic. So they based everything on your identity, right. or, but not your ideas, if that makes right. sense. Yeah. Yep. Nope, that's exactly yeah, and I- what it is. And Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, I, I think that I want to expand the idea of, of what modern day multiculturalism looks like to, to something that's a little bit more than just race based and bringing it back to, right. to the conceptions of, of, of Marxism and communism. I think 
that that the reason it appears to be race based pretty much completely uh, is because they're viewing it on, under the, the the lens of the oppressor versus the oppressed. So right. it can also be uh, men and women as well. If if men are looked at as the oppressors yeah. and women are looked at as the oppressed, that's that that can also. Uh, come into modern day intersectionality and multiculturalism as can you know who you decide to have sex with and you know i guess what what sex you decide you want to be <laughs> you know there, there's there's a lot of different things and i would guess porn. that yeah <laughs> yeah i would guess that it probably started out with 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 being pretty much race-based but uh, now there's now there's all these other different categories of things that are that are put into the mix as well. And that's yeah. that's what, what ends up being intersectionality. It becomes right. identity rather than, it, the, it becomes identity-centered right. rather than cognitively. I read an article the right. other day um, saying that we should focus on identity rather than cognitive thought. And I was reading it and I was pissed. I'm like, dude, are you serious right now? Are you, and that's what, that's what irks me just as, and, and I keep telling everybody, like people don't believe me. I'm like, I am a liberal. I believe a lot of the stuff they believe. Right. They just right. perverted well, you, it. You know, you know about the, the 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 horseshoe theory, right? In in politics. Okay. Yep. So what? So so I'll, I'll let you say it, Boone, Daddy Peterson. <laughs> but <laughs> our daddy. Da, da, da. But yeah, he he kind of used this this idea where. You know, if you split people into groups so much, if you if you really take in the idea of intersectionality and multiculturalism and all these things, eventually you're splitting people up into so many groups that every group only has one person in it, <laughs> right? Hence <laughs> yeah. individuality. So if you if you just let it go full circle, it, it will it will dissolve itself. It must, right? That's right. the logical conclusion. <laughs> I they, just, wanted, they, I just they, wanted to say that they're really they're they're really taking a big dump on liberalism. Oh my and god! If you guys don't know what liberalism is, the philosophy, then you are a fucktard. And I hate saying that word. <laughs> you, <laughs> you guys don't know what liberalism is, and I have made this argument over and over and over again. The moment this is my right wing friends, by the way. So when I hear them call me or say anybody is like a libtard, it, it makes my eye twitch, you know, because <laughs> liberalism is pretty much the foundation of everything in the West. Okay. Yep. Everything. When you are talking about freedom of speech, when you're talking about freedom of the press, when you talk about freedom of religion, when you're talking about freedom to do whatever you want to do, not not go kill anybody. That's that's the social contract theory that, that comes in. But when you talk about those stuff, it's for us as an individual to focus on the individual, to to remove ourselves from our our not not our identity per se, but like to give us a sense of being as one. Right. If that makes sense. And so when I hear people destroy that word, saying libtard or, you know, putting a big L, right? I, it, it makes my high blood, like my high blood pressure go up a little bit. You know what I mean? I'm like. So, so let me, let me ask you this. You, you guys have, you guys have definitely heard the term classical liberal, liberal, yep. liberal, classical liberalism. What, what, starting with Boone, what's, what's your thought on that term? Do you like it? Is it something that you can identify with? So in so classical liberalism, when I talk when when I say it, you guys could interject 
when I say it, I'm talking about John John Locke. I'm talking about the the, the English British version of it. I'm not talking about the American version of it because classical liberalism, how I see it, is that it's pretty much the it consists of both right and left. And I hate I hate using spectrums. But it's pr- basically what in the United States from here, the United States, um, United States of America, we have social liberalism. That's pretty much the social aspects of what we, we for what, what we're going to do for each other. So and then the economic duty, that's what mm-hmm. are we going to work within the community? Right. So when I talk about classical liberalism, I mean, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, pretty much ideas that needs to happen. And I don't. I don't understand why. So classical liberalism did fall pretty much in the 50s, right? It started in the 50s and then the 60s, 70s, and the 80s and 90s all got overtaken by Marxism. Marxism was the not the enemy, but our opponent. When I say our, that's liberals when we say that. So that's what liberalism means to me. And according to the definition version of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yep, I I, I personally agree. Go ahead, Melissa. Oh, no, I was going to say I 100%. I call myself a Kennedy liberal. Mm -hmm. He got shot, I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) No, and and that's exactly what it is. I'm freedom, government overreach, right? Freedom of speech, freedom of press. These are important. These are things I would give my life for. Right. Because these things yeah. are important to me. I sit there, my God, I sit there and still quote Noam Chomsky. Right. Noam Chomsky. I don't like him at all. You don't like, yeah, <laughs> I, I quote Noam. Really? That's how much of a, you guys mm-hmm. are sitting, I, I'm sitting there listening to people talk about cops. I'm like, dude, I hate cops. Yeah. I, I, but it has nothing to do with race. Right. I've been hating cops since I was like 20 years old because I feel that they're an arm of politicians right. to make money for the state. Right. And people end up getting hurt. And I argue that all the time. I'm like, I believe the same things you guys believe. You mm-hmm. guys have just really like perversed it. Okay. So Melissa, this is, this is good because I, I think this might be a little bit of an area of disagreement between you and I. So if you're cool with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not crazy, but but so so here it is. Overall, I think that there is a system that allows police officers to it gives them a lot of leeway to make decisions however they want to make it. So like for me, if they pull me over and they like me they they can basically give me the option to to just give me a, a warning. And this has happened before in my life. You know, I was going 18 miles an hour over the speed limit or something, and I get pulled over. And the, the maximum um, speed that I can be going in order for the officer to give me a warning is nine miles an hour over. So he just writes the warning saying I went nine miles an hour over instead, right? And I'm not going to say that this is race-based either. I'm, I'm just going to say that the system gives gives an opportunity to police officers that the, that that those those officers probably shouldn't have. As far as like the interactions with the cops that I've had, well, who has good interactions with cops? I, I, I mean, seriously, mm-hmm. who has good interactions with cops? And and that's not an indictment of, of of police officers themselves. That's just that's the nature of the game. The reason they're around is not to be friendly, is not to play basketball with with kids on the street, as you sometimes see on Facebook and things. The reason they're there 
is is to to police the the the, the community. So I would be hard pressed to find very many people who do genuinely like cops. And a lot of people that say they do uh, are just doing it so that they can they can be a part of a, a part of a, a group that. Yeah that says that they that they like cops so i i guess where my where my area of disagreement is is you said basically you don't like them so is that is that still true given the context or is there is there something uh, that i'm saying that that you disagree with let me clarify my position okay it's not that i don't like cops it's that i so what i see and and this is again this is the liberal libertarian side of me I think cops are nothing more than a debt collectors for the state. And that's why you see so uh, many laws out there, right? You see so many of these laws out there. Like you you gave me the example of speeding, mm-hmm. right? You're going 18 miles over the speed limit. I don't really how much Okay, I'm going to give you the prime example, okay? I was I, I had a car that was missing a front license plate. I never go to the front of my car. I, I as I keep saying, I'm not a detailed person. Mm-hmm. I didn't notice that my front license plate was missing. I also have yeah. a back license plate, so you knew exactly what my license plate number was, right? Mm-hmm. Not to mention, I, in a lot of states, the uh, front license plate isn't uh, a requirement. But yeah, go ahead. Right? No, in my state, apparently it is. So I go outside one day, and there's a ticket on my car. I'm like, what the hell is this? I get ticketed for not having a front license plate. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've never, I, I, you have to understand that I have a perfect driving record, a perfect drive. I've never even had a speeding ticket. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I go to court because I'm pissed, right? <laughs> That's that. I, I would expect no less from you, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want this on my record. So I sit in court. The cop doesn't even show up. I'm sitting there for hours because they're waiting on the cop to show up. Doesn't even take the time to show up. So the judge finally says, all right, you can come ahead. So I come ahead and I'm like, I don't think I should get a ticket for this. And I'm arguing my point. And his response to me is, if you've never had a ticket, then you're not driving. This is the way the state thinks. This is the way the state thinks. And to me, it was like, so this whole ticketing thing is just you guys' way of getting money. Right. So this yep. this goes back to my whole and, and I, t- I tell you guys all the time, I come from the world of conspiracy theorists. <laughs> she enjoys it. Right. She enjoys uh, but it. that goes back to that whole thing. And I'm sitting there watching all of these laws like mass mandates right now and the charges that's causing even worse police interactions. Right. So it's not that I don't like cops per se. It's more that I hate the fact that politicians use cops so the state can make money. Right. So here's an idea. What what would you think if, let's say, just to keep these uh, things simple, all the laws are exactly as they are, with one exception, and the exception being that no money that's pulled in from tickets or, or, or citations that cops can issue is built into any sort of budget. So if, for example, let's say that there that there's some board of people sitting down somewhere saying, hey, this particular state pulls in $1 billion worth of worth of revenue from tickets, and this is what we're expecting next year. What if it was made illegal to do that and say, okay, all of the money that's that's that comes in based on tickets is we decide to do with, with it, we will later after the fact, after it's collected. What do you think about that? 
there's actually, and I forgot what, I forget which city it is. What they do with their ticket money is they actually give it in any time they collect, it's a small County. Anytime they collect um, money for tickets and stuff, they give it to charity. And I love that idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Would that, would that ease your mind as far as uh, what you're talking about? Cause, cause I agree if, if tickets are literally used as a part of the budget, well, that can that can cause. I, I could see how that could cause some serious issues if the, if if you're lacking on the budget, or if people are literally driving better, or for example, in the times of Corona, when there are so many less people driving. Yep. Well, if if the need for that budget is there, well, what's going to happen? I mean, it's pretty obvious. They're going to create uh, new laws where they can make that money. That's right. That's exactly right. So I'm. I guess I get. I guess we don't. I don't. We don't disagree. <laughs> right. No. And and that's right. just it. And and people say I'm a conspiracy theorist when I say this. No, cops have a quota. They have a ticketing quota. They do. They do. They have so to I, ticket X amount. By the so I've I've heard that before, and I, I'm I'm not saying that it's not true, but I'm mm-hmm. saying I haven't I haven't seen enough evidence to believe that. Well, do you, well, JD. I'm going to tell you evidence that I'm going to. Okay, yeah. let's do you it. Ready? Okay, so John Lang. Do you guys know who he is? Melissa, you're into conspiracy theories. Have you heard about John Lang? John Lang. I probably, okay. I told you I suck at names. If I knew what he spoke, <laughs> okay. I probably remember. So I would like for you guys to go on YouTube after we're, we're done uh, with this recording and look up John Lang. So John Lang was a citizen of Fresno, where, where I'm at. He was murdered in his home on January 20th, 2016, by way of multiple stab wounds and consumption by fire set to his house. And you can't go to his house. If you go to his house, you get arrested. His John was harshly disliked by the local police, a force known for their previous gross misconduct. Okay, so the Fresno Police Department is corrupt. And that's what Melissa is trying to say. John was harshly disliked by the local police force, known for his previous misconduct, his activism. And then he posted on Facebook and he said to ABC 30 Action News, which is here in Fresno, California, if I get killed, the Fresno PD is responsible for my death. So what happened was John pretty much did the whole license plate thing where the cops used it to pretty much get information from people illegally. Right. For tickets and stuff like that. Just like Melissa was saying that they use the money to, you know, fuel their corruption. And I totally agree with JD at the same time that some cops are not like that, um, especially Clovis Police Department. Right. Uh, there's Fresno and there, there's Clovis. So John Lang was murdered. So if you guys go on YouTube and I suggest you guys to in the audience to do the same thing, you can see that Fresno PD did stalk him. They did harass him and they did kill him. We don't know why there's no federal investigation. And every time that I bring up John Lang, cops show in front of my house. And I, it happens before. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. So I'm a dissenter on this one. I'm a, <laughs> I am a skeptic for yep. sure. Okay. Like so, a, so I actually yeah. have heard of him. I, I remember yeah. that story now. Okay. I actually so, have heard uh, of him. Yeah. So, so it, at the same time, we see the arguments of pro-cops mm-hmm. and, 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 and anti-cop. Okay, so not every cop is like this. I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna emphasize on that. Not every cop is like this, but I don't like the cops either. Not that I hate cops. I don't have nothing against cops. They are part of the social contract that we have with the government and toward the citizen. We need protection. We need law and order, right? But the situation with John Lang is a disgrace because he was murdered. 
in his own house in broad daylight. And they concluded that his death was suicide. You don't commit suicide with a knife behind your back. Okay. He was suicided? Yeah, he was suicided. So his house get, is set on fire. And if you go to his house right now on Venice, down the street where I live, there is a cop sitting there right now. And if you guys go on YouTube and see activists go over there, the cops will stop you and the cops will ask you questions. So this is what it, what I think Melissa's trying to say is the bureaucracy. She's tired of the bureaucracy because they feed into the system as well. Yep. I'm not, like I said, again, I'm not saying all cops are like that, but but we know that the first person that's going to come after you, if there is a set revolution, it's going to be the cops. Yep. Okay. So, so Melissa, I just got the the link that you sent over, and I, I, I want to get to that in just a second. Okay. But first, let me let me start with this. This is this is the issue I have with with you know all cops are bastards being yeah, no. the extreme version. Yeah. And I know you guys are not saying that. I'm not no. going to say that you are. But you know, and then and then a, a lesser version of that being I don't like cops. Right. Well, every time I seem to have this conversation with people, if we're able to, you know, to 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 be respectful with each other and have a reasonable conversation, mm-hmm. it seems to turn into uh, I have disagreements with the system, and the the cops are representatives of that system. Therefore, I dislike the cops. And the 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 major issue with that sentiment is that it directly you know it, i i think that it directly causes hatred and 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 lack of support for the cops when when we really do need it because i think in most cases and i'm not even saying most cops i'm saying in most cases the mm-hmm. cops are, are pretty damn necessary mm-hmm. so is is there a way that we can have this conversation you know and saying i i i don't I don't like the cops is not the best way to say it. I think I think saying a, a system set up to collect money money from 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 citizens and used to funding things, you know, via traffic tickets is bad. I mean that that doesn't roll off the tongue quite the same way, but you know, I so, I, I would so like to like, see So you're yeah, saying like a, a change of language. A change of a change of language because you know I, I see it all the time. I see all cops are bastards. I see you know I don't like cops, and even the even the the more reasonable people say you know oh, well most interactions I've I've had with cops are are, are bad. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, duh. That's mm-hmm. the same with with everyone, right? That doesn't mean we, that we should we should get rid of them, obviously. And I know that you guys are not saying that either. Mm. That doesn't mean that 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 I, I I just I just think making it about the people rather than about the system because those people basically they don't have a whole lot of say into into how the system works and correct me if i'm wrong on that but yeah yeah it's about changing the language and i think that would be much more productive you know it would allow it would allow officers to to go into areas you know especially in 2020 um where they haven't been allowed to go right um, let me rephrase let me let me rephrase here i don't like politicians and i don't like the system they set up it's not that i don't like cops yeah. Um, that's just my automatic reaction to say it. What I mean to say is I don't like the system itself and the politicians that create that system. Yes. Yeah. Does that I'm make with sense? you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly, we're saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. I, absolutely. But so anyway, yeah. Okay. So if we're good with that, going on to, to what you said, you were, t- we were talking about traffic ticket quotas as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm I'm definitely gonna have to look up the John Lang, Lang thing, Boone. I, oh, I had no idea. About no, no, that. No, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, watch JD. You're gonna watch okay. it, and you're gonna be like, okay, makes sense. What I think the solution is is that we need politicians to stop. Well, 
we need to stop voting in the same fucking people because we have goddamn dinosaurs in our current politician. Nancy Pelosi has been there a long time. She, the bitch is practically melting on TV. <laughs> fucking. <laughs> Sorry. Was that too harsh? <laughs> it's, hey, it's, it's out there now. This is on. This is being recorded. So too late now. Okay, and then we have fucking John. No, John McCain died. So we have all these old politicians. Not, I'm not talking. I'm not talking about just. I'm not talking about just the Democrats. Okay, I'm talking about the fucking right wing too. Okay, we have young ones. For some odd reason, they're serving a long time. And so, just like you know, Melissa said in the beginning of the podcast podcast episode, we need different ideas. We need different people. And this is where JD and I talk about Unity 2020, where we have different younger people coming in with different ideas now of mm. course we can make the argument about aoc i think she's a she's a toad and she doesn't really offer anything of substance however i do see some people who are you know on the left that provides good arguments like class warfare okay this is the marxist they believe in class warfare and how i see it what's going on is pretty much the boragis trying to keep your position and they use antifa as their yes you know, combat or their little warriors that you see mm -hmm. because majority of antifa are well mm, white no no hatred towards white people jd i love you but like <laughs> <laughs> you're our adorable white boy <laughs> I'm, I'm your i'm your token white boy perfect <laughs> sounds good and so we have nothing against white people but what we're trying to say and i, I don't know melissa you can interject if you want to is that these people claim to be fighting for us, right? Fighting for people that looks like me, Melissa. Not people that looks like JD, unfortunately. He's at right. the bottom of the hierarchy right now. <laughs> so it's they claim to be fighting for people like us. And every time Melissa and I say, no, we don't need people like you to fight for us, they call us what? White nationalist agent. White supremacy. Oh, agent. there's a white supremacy comes out when you tell them. <laughs> I'm going to give you, I'm going to mm -hmm. give you guys an example. I'm part of this community group, right? I'm, I live in a community with a large population of white people. I live in the outskirts, the suburbs of the Twin Cities. I'm sorry to hear that. Are you okay? <laughs> Me and JD live in fucking California's burning. She's like, oh my goodness, I live in the suburbs. I have oranges growing on my trees. And we're like, what's up? You guys see all my plants? And I told you my parents are farmers. I got apple trees, peach trees, garden with peppers in it. Oh, bless um, your heart. <laughs> I just go out into my backyard every day and I grab an apple, go wash it, and that's my breakfast. She's so like you a garden. You, you live in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. All right. Pretty well, much. there it is. No, so I'm part of this community group and I, I just go on there to troll sometimes. It's it's actually pretty fun to see all these white progressives come after me. I actually had I had posted something the other day and a whole bunch of white people started attacking me saying that I don't believe in equity and all this stuff. And I'm laughing, I'm rolling. The funniest part was, is that some other white progressive ended up writing, um, just tagging, just posting about me saying, it was a, a photo saying, you'll be much more at peace if you stay out of other people's business. Right. Wow. And I'm That's sitting here like, right. So I'm like, wait, race isn't my topic of discussion. I'm not allowed in that conversation. What I've personally found is that, and this goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, is that a lot of these white progressives, they are trying to, they, they do have, and, and 
I'm not going to be nice about it. I honestly is. I, I'm not going to be nice about it. Go for it. You guys are trying to be super nice about these type of things. I'm not that type of person. I'm, I'm going to tell you straight as it is. These people are racist. I, and I'm, I'm listening to them. Right. I'm listening to them speak. And when you talk about poor, they think black. Right. Yeah. When you talk and I, I sit there and I have conversations with them and I'm like, you don't know any black people, do you? <laughs> well, I, I do have to say, you know, poor people are just as smart as white people. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But that's what I'm talking about. And and I sit there and I ask them and they refuse to answer the question. I'm like, you don't know too many black people, do you? you JD, you've heard my husband speak. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sitting here like and I'm telling. Yeah, he's, a, he's a smart guy for sure. I'm telling these people, I'm sitting here like, and and let let me tell them, it's not your position to tell me how to think. Right. It's World yeah. War Three. I mean, I'm literally getting attacked. I got called you, some lady the other during a con during this whole conversation we had back and forth, and this is a really funny story. She thought I was a white chick, right? <laughs> so she goes, she goes, read white fr- fragility. Oh. And I went back and I said, you know, D'Angelo is a, a self-admitted racist, right? You you do understand that, right? And she goes, you didn't read the book. I said, yes, I did. That's how I know she's a self-admitted racist. And she goes, well, you didn't understand it. The point is we're all racist. So I went back at her and I was like, so now it's okay to be racist as long as you admit it. <laughs> when yeah, did that become okay? That, that, that part's always been a little bit confusing to me. I, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to jump into all of the obvious stuff, but, but, you know, if you're a racist and you admit it, then you're a racist. If you're a racist and you don't admit it, then you're a racist. You know, there's, there's, you know, your, your, your biases that you have and whether or not you're aware of them, you still have them. Therefore you're a racist. So there's nothing, there's nothing on the planet that you can do to, to not, to not be a racist. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Why is it, why is it okay to be a racist if you admit it, but only on one side of the spectrum? Mm. You know, what's funny is do you guys, I, and I got into an argument about this too. I was like, do you guys know what racist is? Right. JD, you can't be a racist. Do you know why you can't be a racist? No, I don't tell me. Cause you have no power over me. Racist has two requirements. To be a racist, there are okay. two requirements historically. <laughs> okay, as of as of like three years ago, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> JD, <laughs> it really sucks to be him right now. He's just like, I I, I, I'm just... no, 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 no. Melissa's got my back. She's saying I can't be racist. No, you because... cannot be a racist, right? Because being a racist requires two very distinct things, right? Prejudice. Or yeah, prejudice plus power. You have no so, power. So so I, I I gotta ask: Are you are you analogizing, or is that is that your real view on the on the term racism? That's my real view on the. That's the historical view on racism. Right. I but see. as I said, they perverted the idea. Mm. In order to be a racist, you needed not only to be prejudiced, but you needed power to implement your prejudices. Mm. I see. Right. And uh, so, so let me ask you this. When, when you say, when you say power, are you talking about institutional power, systemic power, or are you talking about more specifically just any power power within? So let's say, let's say that, that I live in a hypothetical country where, where white people make up 5% of the population and we are tortured on site everywhere we go. 
right? However, I'm in a room full of other white people and there's a black person there and I call them the the N-word or something like that. In that situation, do I have power over them? I know how specific no. that is, but I'm speci- it's specific for a reason. You don't have power over them. That's the key okay. is power. So when, when I say power, I mean like CEOs of a company can create policies, right? Mm-hmm. That's power, right? My neighbor can't create a policy that's going to affect me. So he can be prejudiced. He can think all types of things, but as long as I don't give him power and that, and that's what that's brings it back to these people are racist because in order to call yourself a racist, you're saying you have power over me. Mm -hmm. No, you don't. You have no power over me unless I give it to you. Right. Yeah. And that's me as an individual, right? Now, I, politicians, and, and, and they perverted. So basically, systematic racism itself has been perverted to be this invisible force. And that's another thing that annoys me. I'm like, everybody talks about invisible or, or systematic racism. When they discuss it, they talk about it like it's like the force from Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Nobody can see it, Right. No, systematic racism is a set of policies created by the politicians y'all keep voting for. That's systematic racism. Systematic racism is policies that are implemented by racists, i.e. the 1994 crime bill Biden put through. Mm -hmm. That's systematic racism. So you keep saying, and that's why they perverted these terms, right? When you pervert Mm -hmm. these terms, you can throw your finger over there and over there and over there to this invisible idea, right? That oh, it's really- most definitely a shift in goalpost. And right. it seems to have been, the goalpost sh- seems to be shifting faster and faster nowadays. Oh my God, yes. It means, it means whatever you want it to mean. You right, know? exactly. And that's why I hate, I, I want things defined. When racist was defined as prejudice plus, plus power, it was simple, Right. You could be prejudiced. I could be prejudiced. Anybody could be prejudiced. But we couldn't be racist. So I got to I gotta be honest with you. So, so I've heard that, that before as well. And typically where I've heard racism equals pl- prejudice plus power, it, it, it comes from the left, right? And that's not generally been my understanding of it. And maybe it's just because I never decided to look it up and, 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 and look into the history of it. I'm not sure, but, but to me, I, I, I think that, that racism is pretty simple. I think it's, it's prejudice based on race. I, in my opinion, whether or not you've got power over somebody is, is irrelevant. I mean, obviously it makes it worse, but I don't, I don't think that that, I don't think that that changes the definition of racism. Well, with the, with the Asians, for example, the, with the Harvard, you know, rejecting applications due to, you know, Asians going in Harvard University, for example. And there was a lawsuit against that. And you guys know about that. So that's like me and Melissa going to Harvard and both of us getting rejected at the fact that we're Asian. We're too smart. So we're going to mm-hmm. have a black person go in. That's racist as fuck, in my personal opinion, because first of all, yes. I'm bad at math. So I'm not going to go in at all. <laughs> you just assume... So- that so I mean. that's a that's a that's a perfect example of racism where it's it's prejudice plus power. Right. But so. if if I if I go up to somebody on the street I don't know and I don't have any ability to 
to create policies over them. And I don't have any ability to harm them physically, but I still accost them with, 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 with racist terms. I think that that could still be considered, considered racism. Now it should, in that situation where it's just words, should that be illegal? I think that's a, that's a totally different topic, but I, I, I think that that could still be blatant racism. What do you think? You're prejudiced. Okay, prejudice, prejudice based on race, though, right? We, ha- we have to remember the context. We have to remember the context, too, because comedians, for example, they make fun of a lot of stereotypical racist shit, but they're not necessarily racist like Joe Rogan, right? Oh, of course. Yep. You know, so we have to remember the context of, you know, JD, you're not going to go up to somebody. You're, me and you are not going to hang out and you're like, hey, Boone, how do you make fried rice? You know, you can't, you know, that's just, <laughs> it's just an assumption, <laughs> right? And by the way, I, oh, I, know I, don't, I don't know how to make fried rice. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty much what. Do you drain your fried rice? Tell me no, you don't drain I, your fried no. rice. Oh, you don't. No, I'm talking to JB. No, you don't drain. You don't drain your fried rice. Okay. So you, you, <laughs> rinse it. It, you rinse it before you cook it, and then you cook it. <laughs> See, he gets it. He gets it. That's it. He's our white boy, so he gets uh, it. So. <laughs> yeah, but I just want to. I just want to close the loop on this, Melissa. So I'm okay with that. I I, I don't have a problem with that definition, but it's not. It's not what 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 I think would be generally considered the common definition. So, um, go ahead. I was going to say so. Prejudice itself can manifest itself into action. Prejudice cause you either to like one group over another um, because of certain traits, or dislike one group over another because of certain traits. Okay, that can manifest itself into um, actual physical actions as in manifests itself into reality as in words right so it can be it could be subtle words too it could be like i have a prejudice i I, and you you can say that um with black people because my husband's side of the family can't be on time for shit right okay right but some people can see that as a, a that that is a prejudice i have and it's something it's not based on anything I know for sure, but it's an ongoing joke, mm-hmm. right? Okay. But it, it is a prejudice I have, and I understand that. People look at all these terms like they're they're these really, really bad, awful things. Mm-hmm. When in all actuality, okay. it does I see that where you're going. Right. Yeah, in yeah, all yeah. Actuality, as long as you understand it, it's not. Am I a racist? I'm going to give you an example. Okay. I, I will put my community before any other community. You're talking about the Cambodian community. The Khmer community. Okay. Right. If the Khmer people need me, I will, I, I will probably put them before my Patriot. Patriot. See, I can't speak English. <laughs> Patriotism. Right. Um, and that's, and that's my honest truth. I'm, I'm about empowering my community. Right. So there's there's a big difference between um, no no no, and, and the reason why I think it's not racist is because there's a big difference between uh, supporting something and 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 going against something, right? So so if if I support my family, if I support my neighbors, or or you know whatever group of people that I decide to support, including protection for them, all, all the way up to to protecting them with with my life, I I don't think that that has much to do with with racism at all. What if you did that with white people? With with white people? Mm-hmm. What are, what is white people? Those with European descent. Okay. So Would it be racist. 
would it be would it be racist if i i just want to make sure i understand the question so i can answer it properly so what it correct me if i'm wrong here but your question is would it be racist if i decided that i wanted to protect white people up to and including my life yep that's a hard hard question to answer and the reason i say that is because i have no allegiance to quote unquote white people okay right i i don't i i have allegiance to my family I have allegiance even to my extended family. I have allegiance to my neighbors. I have allegiance to the people that I work with. I have allegiance to people who who look at the world in a similar way that, that I do. But there's nothing in in my nature that 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 says that I should have some sort of allegiance to white people. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because that's only the only thing we have in common is is a similar skin tone and maybe maybe our our, our background, right? Good point. So, so so would would it be racist for me to have an allegiance to them? I would say in my case, yes. Does that mean that that's the case with everybody who who would have an allegiance to uh to to white people um because they're white? No, it it just depends on your scenario. Mm-hmm. So the scenario that you gave me Melissa is that your parents and you know they came as refugees. You gave a whole background about about Cambodia and about you know various rains and 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 all of these different things. Your allegiance to Cambodian people is not because they're Cambodian. It's because of a shared history. Okay. And it's not it's not it's not an ancient shared history. It's a shared history that you yourself have have very specifically been a part of. So would it be in my opinion racist for you to have that allegiance? Absolutely not. But why is that though, JD? That's the thing. That's that's what Melissa was trying to say. Is is that she's going to have she's so so basically if we were at war right now, for example, and then me and Melissa are fighting side by like side, us, us three, us not, three at war. Not, 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 <laughs> no, not three. Like like okay, so Melissa will automatically protect who looks like her or who is her like similarities, and that's me. Right, right, but 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 it's not because you look the uh, the same. It's because you have a shared history. No, so okay, so you're talking about like a particular. So like okay, so you're Irish, right? You said you're Irish. My my last name is Irish, but I'm kind of a mutt of you know Western. (laughs) So like for example, let's just say you're Irish, and then so you are protecting the Irish community or your allegiance to the Irish community with Melissa. When she made an allegiance to the Khmer people, the Cambodian com- community, correct? It's not racist, but every time, like, it's a white person making an allegiance to his culture or his people, like the Irish people, it's racist. That's what. No, no. So that's what that's that's what a lot of people say. But I want to be very specific, okay? I think nuance is absolutely key here. Right. So when when I say that in my position, yes, I think it would be racist. I, I'm saying that very specifically, and that's that's not a left-leaning point of view. That's not an Antifa point of view, nothing like that. It's just right. I don't have any allegiance to to those people. However, if 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 there was some some sort of war or occupation in Ireland, and my family had to escape Ireland and come come into the United States as as refugees and and pick themselves up by the bootstraps and 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 you know, as well as all of these other Irish people who went ex- t- through exactly the same thing. They have a similar worldview. They have a similar mindset. Would it be then racist for me to 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 join up with those guys if World War Three or a civil war happened? In that case, no. Mm. Right. But I just don't I, I don't have that that experience to, to fall back on. So so yeah. the allegiances that I would create 
would be with the people who have shared experiences, shared past, you know, so similar more like, cultural views. So more like an empirical allegiance, basically, like an experience, personal experience that you... Yeah. Yeah, and 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 like I'm saying, if that happens to coincide with with uh, with people who look like you or people who are in the in the same country as you, then that's fine. If if it happens to coincide with with people who look nothing like you, that's fine too. It just it it, it all it all depends on the situation. So so I'll, I'll just say it again. I think it's I think it's all about nuance. And in your and Melissa's case, no, I don't think it's racist. In my in my case, I think it would be racist. But that doesn't make that true for for all all white people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, the 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 perfect example of that is is in in South Africa, as everybody's you know been been following. There's there's some some pretty serious racism toward toward white farmers in South Africa. It's been that way for a long time. So if those white farmers have an allegiance to each other, is that does that make it racist? Does that make it white supremacist? Well, no, absolutely not. That that's all I'm saying is I think nuance is key. You gotta you gotta I, yeah. look at I, the no, scenario. I, complete, I agree with you on that. I mean, you make perfect sense there. With, with the thing in Africa, like when I hear like people talk about white supremacists in Australia and stuff, I just laugh because it's just so fucking stupid. It's just like the whole identity politics and stuff like that. It's getting ridiculous because it's starting to spread like a virus to other countries. I mean, even identity <laughs> politics, even identity politics is, is going to like Ireland. Like the Irish people are like the coolest fucking people on the planet. If I can go to war and if, if there was ever a war. <laughs> The Irish people will be on my side because those people are freaking hilarious. They have no hate in their bones whatsoever. But these, this whole SJW thing, it's starting to spread all throughout the world. So it's getting ridiculous. It's true. And no, just it's like, getting ridiculous. Yeah, it's getting ridiculous. It's like the whole, I don't know what it is. So good conversation. See- yeah, right. see, for me, just one more quick thing here. For me, I don't see these terms as good or bad. Right. I see them as necessities. Um, because in order to fully understand something, and I, I mean, the whole podcast, your your symbol for the FOW is yin and yang, mm-hmm. right? And, and Buddha smoking weed. And the Buddha smoking weed. Yeah, that they are not smoking the weed. So go ahead, Melissa. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, go so ahead. You, can't, you can't really look at any of these things because when you start looking at any of these things as good or evil. Right. Um. And that's, again, that that comes from the Eastern side of me. Christians see all these things as good and evil. I see right. them as necessities of life. Right. You can't understand something unless you see the other side of it. Right. Yeah, Why, does that make sense? That's a that's a fantastic point. So so you know, and that that's that makes a lot of sense. So when you when you say prejudice, immediately my mind goes to, well, that's a bad thing, you know, and mm-hmm. then and then you gave the you know. The, the example of, of your husband, you know, and his family being late all the time. And, and like, is it for me to decide whether that's a good thing or a bad thing? Probably not. Right. But yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. Pre- prejudice. I, 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 in, yeah. In, yeah, go ahead. Like, like the whole the yin and yang thing. And I'm going to break it down why I chose it. And I, I talk about this a lot of time. The reason why I chose uh, JD is because he balanced my chaos for a reason. Okay. And I need somebody to balance my chaos because I just, I just said Nancy Pelosi was melting, and so that's that was bad. Okay, I need to, <laughs> I need somebody to control to control my chaos, and he's a perfect example of that. And this is where it comes in between with the masculine and the feminine, as well the moon and the sun, and so that's pretty much the existence of everything in the universe. It consists of chaos and order. So, like Melissa said, the moment that you start digging into things like this, 
like talk about race and stuff like different human beings and stuff you notice there's a connection and there's a root to everything and this yep. is why i have the yin and yang as my symbol and it's pretty common but mine's a little bit different because of the fact that you know the black i don't see the world as black and white i see the ver the world very colorful Mm -hmm. different particles different colors that make a connection with one and if you mix the two it comes with a different color and with the buddhist smoking a blunt that's just the attitude of the whole podcast is <laughs> for us to talk about stuff like this for down-to-earth unorthodox individuals like the three of us coming together and having this conversation so and melissa do you have anything else to add before we you know end this it, yep in my personal opinion buddha did smoke weed <laughs> yeah he didn't he didn't go reach enlightenment for no reason <laughs> right. he smoked a lot of weed <laughs> just say it <laughs> my mom was fucking mad she was like you don't put the breath smoking the cack on it mom oh. <laughs> we just spoke I just spoke in my language a little bit guys so I do know a little bit Kmai, so if you guys want to learn a new word gacha that's weed <laughs> that's weed Go around saying guitar everywhere. Guitar. Did you say? Is guitar. that like? Is that like guitar, but without pronouncing the R? <laughs> yep. Instead guitar. of the. So yeah. guitar instead of the tar, you say cha. Yeah. Oh, and guitar. To add, yeah, to add on top you of that. You said it perfect. Guitar. <laughs> there you go. Guitar. There you go. And JD's like, I'm going to go marry a Cambodian chick now. After this. <laughs> but, okay, I'm down. Let's do it. Bring me one. Uh, go say that in front of an elder and watch them pull out a broom on you. Oh god! <laughs> so, but the, the the thing is, is that different cultures and stuff like that, and and to add to you know every, the whole theme of what we talked about today, and we 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 talked about some serious shit today, and so we still got along with each other, and we're still friends, and that's where the chaos and the order just kind of you know getting between. Of course, you know nuance is very important humbleness and the ability to understand that not everybody thinks the way that you do and sorry melissa you're saying something before i interrupted no i'm good <laughs> We're talking about bring bring us some some last minute wisdom <laughs> melissa what do you got for us share share with the world what you think let's let's put it this way melissa what wisdom that you would like to share with fouled or the people in the foul universe what have you learned from your experience as you melissa an individual I mean, always for me personally, the most important thing about life is self-reflection. I, I always tell people I don't have feelings. Okay. And it's not that I don't have feelings. I'm pretty sure everybody has feelings is that I'm most critical on myself. So anybody else criticizing me can't hurt me. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So that that's the big thing is understanding um, if you want to grow as an individual and the only way we can get beyond the point we're sitting at right now in society is if we grow as individuals right? and try to reach that self-actualization stage. And that's Beautiful. always been my goal is to reach that self. My goal is to reach that transcendent stage. right? And I, I, I go back and forth between self-actualization and esteem. Mm -hmm. And I know that's my, one of my biggest flaws and I understand what my flaws are. And that's the big thing is, once you're able to understand yourself and, and know where your strengths are and know where your flaws are, nobody can hurt you. Mm -hmm. Nobody can take that power from you. Right. And that's what it all buckles down to is who you choose to give power to. Right. Mm. And to add to that, going back to Buddha smoking kacha, Buddha didn't have nothing. 
he died with nothing. And that's if you are able to love yourself unconditionally and this the self-transcendent stage. So that is the truth, spirit, self-consciousness of being an unconditional love. You have reached the state, the stage of what uh, we call in the file called Buddhahood. And so you don't ha- you don't need a lot of things to reach that stage, but you do need to understand that self-revolution. And I said this many times before, that is that's the most important things because you can't ask for peace if you don't even have inner peace to begin with, right? So well put. Yeah. So guys, I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation that we had. Uh, we went really deep in this one. I go, I need to eat. So my physiological, my Maslow on the bottom is starting to get neglected a little bit. So as all, no, you know what, JD, you sign off. How about that? All right. Okay. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Thanks, Melissa, for coming on. Glad we finally had you. Thanks, Boone, for leading the way. And as always, stay far out. Bye.